regular cinema goer, it's a familiar experience. After buying your popcorn and supersized fizzy drink, you squeeze into your seat beside your sweetheart or your mates, or if you're very unfortunate, your kids. <laughs> the lights dim and the curtain draws back from the screen. First, you have to endure the obligatory dose of adverts, including that one for the local takeaway that you wouldn't be seen dead in. And then the words appear on the screen. The following preview has been approved for all audiences. The words fade to black. And then that man with the deepest, graveliest voice in the world, which I won't attempt to imitate, starts to speak. You know the guy. And he tells us of a time long forgotten, or a time in the distant future, or some, some ordinary people who discovered their extraordinary powers, or a threat that the world has never faced before, which only one man can overcome, or some other string of superlatives. And for the next two and a half minutes, your eyes are illuminated by scenes that flash before you with increasing intensity and frequency. Car chases, plane crashes, leaps from high buildings, exploding planets, passionate kisses. The image and sound effects and music build and build and build to a climax until suddenly it all cuts to darkness and silence. And the words slowly fade onto the screen. Coming soon. We're all familiar with film previews in the cinema or on the television as well. Glimpses of forthcoming movies to whet our appetites. But has anyone here seen a preview of a film in a cinema that was immediately followed by that very same film as the main feature? Or even more unlikely, have you ever mistaken a preview for the main feature? Well, in the passage that we've just read, some of the disciples of Jesus are given an incredible preview. Far more exciting and astounding than any cinematic preview. They're given a preview of the future glory of Jesus. A glory that one day they would share in and enjoy forever. But they made the mistake of thinking that this preview would be followed immediately by the main feature. Or perhaps that the preview was the main feature. And so Jesus has to set them straight about his mission and about what it means to follow him here and now. And there are similar lessons here for us as well. And as we study this passage, we'll see that although God may well give us previews of glory in our Christian experience, and although glory will be the main feature one day, at this time, our outlook and our priorities are not to be focused on glory, but on something else. And we'll discover what that something else is in due course. We're going to look at this passage this evening, a long passage, uh, in three sections, to which I've given the headings, up the mountain, down to earth, and along the road. Let's just have a quick word of prayer before we get into them. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which speaks to us of your Son. Help me to explain it clearly and give us all ears to listen and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, Amen. So then, let's begin, first of all, up the mountain, verses 28 to 36 of chapter 9. There's something very important to observe about verse 28, and it's this. It follows verse 27. 
Did you notice that? Very important. I'll explain why. Last Sunday evening, Colin explained how, in the first part of this chapter, the disciples are called into action by Jesus, and so are we. And this call culminates in Jesus saying to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And those were sober and challenging words, to say the least. But Jesus also has a word of encouragement, a wonderful promise for his disciples. Verse 27, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus promised his disciples that they would see with their own eyes the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, as Colin explained, this uh, saying probably refers mainly to the amazing events that followed Jesus' crucifixion, his triumphant resurrection, his uh, ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost, and then the the dramatic spread of the gospel and the growth of the new Christian church. But since verse 28 does follow, immediately after verse 27, and Luke deliberately says, about eight days after Jesus said this, it's natural to take the remarkable event that's known as the Transfiguration, which Luke records in verses 28 to 36, as at least a partial fulfilment of Jesus' promise. And the disciples are given a jaw-dropping preview of the future glory of Jesus and the full revelation of his kingdom that would come. So let's look again at this story and try to see what it means and what we should learn from it. Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, up to a mountain to pray. Scholars disagree about uh, exactly which mountain it was, and the fact is that today no one really knows. And that's probably just as well. One popular view is that it was Mount Tabor in the region of Galilee, and there's a picture of it. And in fact, in the 6th century, some Christians decided to build three chapels on Mount Tabor, one dedicated to Christ, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. I guess the irony was lost on them. But anyway, Jesus takes these three disciples with him to pray. But then, something quite extraordinary happens. This is no ordinary prayer meeting. In fact, if you try and picture what Luke describes here, I mean, it's kind of like a scene from a, a science fiction film. Jesus is transformed before their very eyes so that his face changes and his clothes stream with brilliant light. And then, two great heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, appear beside Jesus and enter into conversation with him. And then, as if all this wasn't enough for them to take in, a cloud descends over the scene And the very voice of God speaks to them out of the cloud. And when the voice finishes, this stunning preview of glory ends as suddenly as it began. And they find themselves alone again with Jesus in the darkness and the silence of the night. Wow. That must have been quite something. But what does it mean? What's the point? Scholars have various uh, opinions about the significance of the transfiguration. After all, that's what scholars are good at, having lots of opinions. Um, They ask, was it for the benefit of the disciples? Was it for the benefit of Jesus, perhaps? 
But whatever the case, at the very least, we can see that the transfiguration powerfully pointed the disciples to two crucial truths, just as it points us today to these same truths. First, it points us to the identity of Jesus, and second, to the mission of Jesus. The transfiguration, in the first place, reveals to us Jesus' true identity. And that's a theme throughout the first half of Luke's Gospel. He wants us to communicate to his readers, who is this Jesus person? Well, how does the transfiguration do that? The dazzling light that shone from Jesus was like a signature of divine honour. In effect, it said, this is no ordinary man. This man is the bearer of heavenly glory. And then there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And a lot of ink has been spilled about the precise significance of these two figures. But it's safe to say that they represent all the promises of the Old Testament that has yet to be fulfilled, awaiting for fulfilment. Moses was the leader who had delivered God's laws to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, but he was also a prophet who had predicted the coming of a far greater prophet than him. You can read that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Elijah was the prophet whose return was believed to signal the arrival of a saviour, God's anointed one. And so together, Moses and Elijah signify that Jesus is the fulfilment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Christ. But the voice from the cloud takes things even further. The cloud itself would have been familiar from Old Testament history as a a sign of the presence and the blessing of God. And yet the voice from the God informs the disciples that Jesus is not merely blessed by God, he is nothing less than the Son of God. And the disciples are now left in no doubt whatsoever as to Jesus' identity. And Luke wants to make sure that neither are we. However, the transformation, uh, sorry, the transfiguration points not only to the identity of Jesus, but also to his mission, what he came for. After all, what was it that Jesus talked about with Moses and Elijah? Did they chat about how great it was that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God? Did they express their wonder at his splendour and his glory? No. Luke tells us that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. They spoke about his death. They spoke about the cross. They spoke about how Jesus would go and die a shameful death on a hill in Jerusalem to fulfill all God's promises about salvation for a sinful world. That was his mission. In the midst of this awesome vision of glory, the single most important topic of conversation was Jesus' mission of humble self-sacrifice. That was an important lesson for the disciples. But as we'll see, it took some time and some effort for them to learn it. Well, before we descend from the mountain, let's think for a moment about how to respond to all this. I mean, just imagine that you had been invited up the mountain with Jesus and with these three privileged disciples. 
Imagine that you too had experienced all this, this incredible preview of glory. How would you have responded to this stunning vision? Would your response have been an inappropriate response like Peter's? Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter wanted to prolong the experience. He wanted to keep it going by providing somewhere for these three heavenly figures to stay. He wanted it to go on and on. He was right to say that it was good for them to be there, but it couldn't continue indefinitely. At least not at this stage in Jesus' ministry and in Peter's own ministry as a follower of Jesus. And many of us, I think, have to admit to that same tendency. We enjoy some wonderful experience of God's presence and blessing, uh, an uplifting worship service, a sermon where God speaks to us powerfully and directly, a Christian camp or conference uh, that gives us a small taste of heaven, the euphoria of seeing a loved one finally come to Christ. We want that wonderful experience to go on and on and on. But it can't. Not at this stage in our lives and our ministries. As we'll see in just a moment, we always have to come down to earth. Well, if that's the inappropriate response, what then is the appropriate response? Well, we read that in verse 35. The voice from the cloud. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Whenever we have some wonderful experience of the presence and blessing of God, our response should be to turn our attention again to Jesus and to listen to his words, not to invest everything in the experience. Why? Why must we do that? Because it is Jesus and his words that will sustain us and direct us once the normalities of the Christian life return and that wonderful experience becomes only a memory. Listen to him. Well, let's turn now to the next section of the passage, which we find in verses 37 through to 45. Three disciples have uh, experienced a stunning preview of Jesus' glory on the mountain, but now they've come down to earth. And as they rejoin their colleagues, they discover that it's down to earth with a crash. The marked contrast between the glory on the mountaintop, of that experience there, and then the subsequent shame of the disciples has not been lost in some of the great artists of history. Raphael's classic painting captures it well, well with, the, uh, with its depiction of the heavenly splendor of the transfiguration above, and then the pathetic scene of anguish and human failure below. But just as there were important lessons to learn up the mountain, so there are important lessons to learn here, both for Jesus' disciples then and for Jesus' disciples today. First, Luke sets the scene by describing an incurable problem. A man in the crowd cries out to Jesus for help. His only son has been repeatedly attacked by an evil spirit that causes the boy to have violent fits that throw him to the ground. The attacks are so frequent, so destructive, that the father, in fact, fears for his son's life. 
The man is clearly distraught. If you're a parent who's ever had to uh, care for a child with a debilitating illness, then you'll be able to identify with this man's anguish. Now, some people have taken this boy's symptoms as typical of epilepsy, which they are, but then they've dismissed the parts about the evil spirit as first century superstition. That's just what people attributed it to at that time. But there's no reason to doubt the reality of demonic attacks or to think that such attacks can't take the form of well-recognised illnesses in some cases. Now apparently this man had uh, brought his son to Jesus' disciples in the hope that they would heal him. We shouldn't be too surprised, maybe you are surprised, but we shouldn't be too surprised that he went first to the disciples rather than directly to Jesus Because we read at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus had already given his disciples power and authority to what? To drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Verse 1 of chapter 9. The real surprise was that the disciples couldn't cast out the spirit and heal the boy. That was the surprise because they'd been doing precisely that sort of thing for weeks. So what was the problem? Well, Jesus points to two problems in his words of exasperation in verse 41. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. In the first place, the disciples showed a lack of faith. Or at least, whatever faith they had was put in the wrong place. They were trusting their own abilities, their own reputations, rather than in Jesus. And secondly, their attempts to heal have been derailed, I think, by bad motives. It seems the disciples had fallen into the trap of performing miracles for the sake of the miracles themselves, rather than to point people to Jesus and his message. The miracles were signs that were to point to something else. The disciples now wanted to satisfy the crowds, but the crowds just wanted a good show without all that uncomfortable repentance business. And so Jesus rebukes them. But in his compassion, he can't allow this tormented boy to suffer any longer. And so, in the face of an incurable problem, Jesus displays an impressive power. Well, the demon knows that his number has been called, and in a desperate last gasp effort, he throws the boy to the ground. But with calm authority, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit, heals the boy, and reunites him with his father. So how did everyone respond to Jesus' impressive power? Verse 43, And they were amazed at the greatness of God, and they marveled at all that Jesus did. In a sense, the crowds had themselves also seen a glimpse of the glory of God. So it's not surprising, really, that they reacted as they did. I suspect most of us would have done something very similar. Wow, what a fantastic miracle. What a great guy this Jesus is. What a great God we have. Hallelujah. But rather than encouraging this reaction, Jesus wants his disciples not to focus on his impressive power, but on an important priority. The most important priority. A priority even more important than praising God for a miracle like this. In the midst of all the commotion, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, listen carefully 
what I am about to tell you. Some other versions of the Bible translate uh, his words very literally. Let these words sink into your ears. We'd say, pin your ears back. This is important. Just as God the Father had said, listen to him on the mountain, now Jesus underlines the point. Listen to me. So what is this important priority that Jesus wants them to hear and to grasp? More important than the wonder of this miracle. Jesus tells them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus' glory and greatness are wonderful to behold, but they're not the main feature at this time. They're previews of what will come later on. For now, the most important thing is the cross. The cross is the main feature. It's the sacrificial death of Jesus that must be at the front of his disciples' minds. If they don't grasp this, they'll miss the point of everything else. At this time, their lives must be cross-focused rather than glory-focused. Otherwise, they won't be true disciples of Jesus at all. And the same applies to us today, if we claim to be his followers. There will surely be glory and greatness to come. But until then, our lives must be cross-focused rather than glory-focused. Otherwise, we won't be true disciples of Jesus at all. But you ask, what does it mean to be cross-focused rather than glory-focused? Give me some details. What does that look like in practice? Well, to find out, we must look at the remainder of this chapter as we follow Jesus and his disciples along the road. Verses 46 to 62. Jesus told his disciples very deliberately that they were not to be preoccupied with his glory, whether that be the the splendor of the transfiguration or the wonder of his miracles. Instead, they should focus on his coming sacrifice. But they didn't get it, Luke tells us. They didn't grasp it and they were just too embarrassed to ask him about it. Their lack of understanding stemmed in part from Uh, popular Jewish expectations of what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do. It was thought that the Messiah would be a mighty political leader who would deliver the Jewish nation from its uh, occupation by the Romans. And so the disciples naturally struggled to process the idea of a Messiah who would accomplish God's purposes for them through his betrayal and shameful execution. just didn't compute. But a further explanation, I think, for their lack of understanding was their misplaced priorities. They didn't yet understand the way of the kingdom. They didn't yet understand the way of the cross. They hadn't grasped how Jesus had come to turn upside down the values and priorities of the world. And so now they have some important lessons to learn. And they learn them along the road. Luke tells us in verse 51 that as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
Jesus heads for Jerusalem to fulfill his destiny. And as the disciples travel with him, several incidents take place that reveal their own misplaced priorities and the misplaced priorities of others who want to join with them. We can identify from these incidents, I think, what I've called four no-nos for the followers of Jesus. I wasn't sure about the term no-no, but maybe no-no was a no-no for a sermon, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Four no-nos for the followers of Jesus. The first no-no is ranking, verses 46 to 48. Quite incredibly, an argument now breaks out among the disciples as to who's the greatest. Who would be honoured the most by Jesus when, when his glory is finally revealed? Who would it be? Who would be top dog, top disciple? As I was thinking a bit about this passage this week, I wondered whether the argument was sparked off by Peter, John and James finally breaking their silence about what they experienced up the mountain. Hey, guys, guess what we saw? Now that's going to look good on your CV, isn't it? But whatever the case, Jesus makes it clear that any kind of ranking who's greater than who and who's the greatest of all, is totally unacceptable for his followers. And he takes a little child who would have represented the least important and the least honoured members of a Jewish society and says to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is greatest. In fact, a a more literal translation of that last sentence would be, for he who is least among you all, he is great. Not he is the greatest, just he is great. The point is, everyone is great in the kingdom of heaven. There's no ranking at all. That's the radical nature of Jesus' kingdom compared to all earthly kingdoms. Do you have a tendency to rank people in the church? Do you find yourself thinking, I wish I was as gifted as her. At least I'm not as useless as him. Well, I know I do. But Jesus says, that's not how my disciples should live. The second no-no for followers of Jesus is rivalry. Rivalry, verses 49 to 50. Having just been told off for ranking one another, one of the disciples now, John, tries to justify their discriminatory attitude by pointing out a man who's been performing exorcisms in Jesus' name, but who isn't a member of their group. Surely if this man were a true follower, he would have joined our group, says John. The fact that he isn't with us puts him under suspicion. Right, Jesus? Wrong, says Jesus. You need to get rid of that attitude of rivalry, John. You need to be willing to welcome as brothers and sisters those who claim to follow me. No one can be indifferent towards me after what I've claimed and done. So if he's not opposing us, he's on our side. He's on my side. Even if he doesn't happen to hang out with us. Do you have a tendency to think of Charlotte Chapel as somehow more pure than other churches? Do you have a tendency to treat with suspicion Christians from other churches or denominations who have different beliefs, different practices, different experiences, different passions? 
I know I do. But Jesus says, that's not how my disciples should live. The third no-no for followers of Jesus is retribution. Verses 52 to 56. Jesus wants to stay now in a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem. And so he does what was commonly done in those days. He sends some of his followers on ahead to make preparations for the rest of them. So everything's ready when they get there. Now the Samaritans were not at all on good terms with the Jews. In fact, that's the whole premise behind the parable of the Good Samaritans. We'll see in a few weeks. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and heretics. And the Samaritans hated them for it. The situation, if you can imagine, was just a little bit like the tensions between the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims in Iraq today. But anyway, for whatever reason, whether they didn't like anyone who went about claiming to be the Messiah, or they just didn't like anyone who was headed on their way to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, the Samaritans tell Jesus and his disciples to clear off. James and John, whose uh, recent experiences up the mountain had perhaps given them delusions of grandeur, are absolutely indignant at this. And so they ask Jesus whether he wants them to call down flaming meteors from the sky to wipe out this village. You have to admit, it's an interesting approach to evangelism. Let our Christian group come and run an outreach event in your town or we'll reduce it to a smoking pile of rubble. Why didn't Billy Graham think of that? Well, the disciples' response to the Samaritans didn't show any lack of faith, did it? They had faith in the power that Jesus had given them. But their faith wasn't a cross-focused faith. It was a warped kind of glory-focused faith. They wanted retribution. But they should have known that this was a time of opportunity for the Samaritans, a time to offer mercy and hope, not a time for judgment. Judgment would come later, but not at the hands of the disciples. And so Jesus rebukes them, and they move on. Do you have a tendency to resent people who respond to your Christian witness with opposition or mockery? Do you secretly harbour a wish that God would bring down judgment on those who insult Jesus and make life life difficult for you and other Christians? Do you just want bad things to happen to bad people? I know I do. But Jesus says, that's not how my disciples should live. The fourth no-no for followers of Jesus is reservations. Reservations, verses 57 to 62. I'm not going to say much about these verses because Tim Bridges preached a very challenging message last month on the parallel verses in Matthew's Gospel. And if you missed that sermon, then I strongly recommend that you download it or get the tape and listen to it. But to summarise, three budding disciples approach Jesus and declare their intentions to follow him. And in each case, Jesus detects that they harbour reservations, either secretly or openly. They want to hold back some part of their lives from him. They want to add qualifications to his demands. And Jesus puts his finger on three particularly sensitive areas which are relevant to all of us 
This came home to me quite powerfully as I was reading them this week. The desire for comfort, stability and security. The desire to keep in step with what our society expects of us and the desire for good family relationships. Now, these things are not wrong in themselves. Quite the opposite. They can be blessings from God. But if we would sooner choose any of them over what Jesus demands of us, then our verbal commitments to be followers of Jesus are shown to be hollow. As Tim noted in his message, these words of Jesus are really shocking. They seem unreasonable and insensitive. I mean, Jesus' replies to these wannabe disciples make some of Simon Cowell's put-downs sound positively encouraging. But the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross, requires a radical change in our priorities. So then, followers of Jesus must say no to these four things. Ranking one another, rivalry toward one another, retribution towards those who oppose them and reservations about the demands of Jesus. And do you see the thread that runs through all four of them? Each one reflects a failure to be focused on the cross, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in humble self-denial and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Each one reflects a desire on some level for glory now whether that be the glory of reputation or the glory of final victory or just the glory of getting what we want. And so I think the underlying principle for Jesus' disciples in all his teaching here, as well as in the transfiguration and in the healing of the boy, the underlying principle is this. Be cross-focused rather than glory-focused. Be cross-focused rather than glory-focused. God has generously given us previews of glory in all our experience of walking with Jesus and learning from Jesus. But glory is not the main feature at this time. It will come. It will come. But now is the time to listen to Jesus and to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. I began by describing the familiar experience of a film preview. The preview gives us a foretaste of something yet to come. We don't expect the film to follow immediately after the preview, and we don't mistake the preview for the film itself. Nevertheless, a preview is precisely that. A pre-view. A view in advance. The preview tells us that the film will come In time, it will come eventually. The preview still points to the main feature. The disciples saw a preview of the future glory of Jesus. But the preview dazzled them and it drew their focus away from the most important thing at that time. So Jesus had to turn their focus to the cross and to the attitudes and the priorities that follow from it. But nevertheless... The preview was precisely that, a preview. It signaled that the glory of Jesus would be the main feature eventually, 
One day, Jesus would be revealed in all his glory, and then, as his followers, they would share with him in that glory. They themselves would be transformed, and they would enjoy the unimaginable delights of the goodness and glory of God for eternity. The cross-focused life that Jesus demanded would be hard. Oh yes, it would be hard. But it would be worth it. More than worth it. And that very same promise applies to all today who acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And that means you and me, if we trust and follow him. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. But not everyone will share in this amazing future glory. Listen to the words of Jesus, spoken eight days before his transfiguration. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed of Jesus? Well, it isn't about blushing when someone asks you if you're a Christian. Being ashamed of Jesus is wanting to save your life for yourself rather than giving it up for him. Being ashamed of Jesus is living a life that is glory-focused now rather than cross-focused now for the sake of future glory. That future day when the glory of Jesus will be the main feature and not just a preview. So we need to examine our hearts and our lives this evening. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Will he be ashamed of us? Are we demonstrating glory-focused lives or cross-focused lives? Are we living for the previews or for the main feature? Let's pray.